Before we dive into Scripture and before we continue in our journey of the gospel on the ground, uh, before we continue through the book of Acts, I want to revisit something from last week. Last week, we looked at Acts chapter 2, uh, and we kind of came to grips with that early church, the early disciples of Jesus Christ, or the, that early community of followers in Christ, and how they moved and, and were ignited by the Holy Spirit and kind of stirred from that. And one of the things that we pointed out, or that we discovered from that early community, was as a group of believers, as a body in Christ, they devoted themselves to certain practices. And of course, one of those practices is the breaking of bread, communion that we will do this morning uh, after the sermon. But one of those practices that they devoted themselves to was the practice of prayer. And when we read through Scripture and we'll see as we journey through Acts and when we read into the New Testament and even in the Old Testament, prayer is, is a fascinating thing. Uh, for many of us, maybe we don't pray very often and so prayer seems a little daunting. And this idea that me, as, as this finite creature, that I get to be able to come before this infinite holy God and I get to speak to God. For many of us, that's almost, it's, well, it's a little intimidating and it's a little scary. And so sometimes we come to this thing called prayer and we think to ourselves, well, I, I don't know how to pray and I can't pray. And I want you to know that is garbage. If you can talk to someone no matter how awkward that conversation, sorry, I'm just going to move that because it seems to be catching my breath. It is catching my breath. Okay. If you can talk to someone, you can talk to God. Uh, it really is that simple. But one of the things about prayer isn't just us individually speaking to God. It's us as a community coming together corporately praying to God. So we gather in, in our home groups and in our life groups and we spend some time in prayer. We have deliberate, intentional prayer gatherings as a church community whereby we come before God and ask God to move. And so all of that is to say that every Sunday morning at 9.15 in the nursery rooms downstairs here, a group gather to pray. That is not an exclusive group. You don't need an invitation carved in marble to get there. That is an open room for anyone and everyone. At 9.15, we generally start with maybe a scripture. Someone will read a scripture just to get our minds into that, and then we pray. And you know what? You don't have to be there every single Sunday. But I want to invite you. I want to challenge you. I want to encourage you. Make a plan to come together now and again to pray. It's when we pray corporately that we see God at work. And I believe that with all my heart. So I know next week that room is going to be way too full for all of us. It's going to be standing room only, and that's going to be amazing, and that will be a proof of revival right there. So today we continue. Over the last couple of weeks, we've been journeying through the book of Acts. Uh, we've blatantly stolen the title of a book called The Gospel on the Ground. Uh, and it's this incredible reminder that as we read through Acts, as Luke writes firstly the Gospel of Luke, where he tells of the work of Jesus Christ and what Christ has come to do. So Luke then continues into the book of Acts, and he's talking about what, what Christ continues to do through his church, through his disciples, through his people, and that is you and I. We continue that line as we serve Christ, as we worship God. We continue that movement of the gospel that began some 2,000 years ago. 
And so today we continue in Acts chapter 3. Uh, now don't worry, we're not going to go through every verse of Acts throughout. That would take far too long. So for the first few weeks, we're going to spend a bit of time in the first few chapters of Acts, and then we'll journey and continue through there. But Acts chapter 3 is one of those passages that it just reminds us of how our lives can change in an instant. You know, sometimes we make a decision and we do something, and in that moment, it might just seem like it's done on a whim. It might just seem like there was no real thoughts, and so we do something, yet that decision and that action has lifelong consequences. Yeah, I'm reminded of way back in probably about, yeah, I don't know, 1993, 1994, uh, I was going to a Baptist church youth group that was not the closest Baptist church to my house. For whatever reason, I was heading off there with my family, uh, and one of my good friends, for whatever reason, he, he had been coming with us for absolute ages, his family were involved, my family were involved. Uh, in fact, I think to date, the two of us were the only two kids ever literally banned from a Friday night youth group for a few weeks because of how much trouble we'd gotten into, but you know, we were like thick as thieves at this church. And so for whatever reason, my friend decides he's gonna visit the local Baptist church that happened to be just down the road from our house. And so he heads off to youth and I head off to mine. And, you know, this is the day before social media, before cell phones, uh, before like instant communication. Uh, and so he phones me the next day. And of course, he has the awkward conversation with my parents because they answer the phone and, you know, he's got to connect with them and make small talk. The kids today do not know how difficult it is to reach out to a friend. Uh, and so my, my friend phones and, and I get to the, onto the phone with him and he says, Brian, you're not going to believe it. You have to come to Pinelands Baptist Youth next week. And I'm like, why would I want to go to Pinelands Baptist Youth? I mean, we're, we're already Cape Town Baptist. And, and he just simply quoted scripture. And he said, Brian, it is the land of milk and honeys. <laughs> As a 17-year-old boy, that grabbed my attention. So the following Friday, I decided I'm going to this youth group. And well, okay, I met a number of people, but Cindy was a part of that youth group. <laughs> now, I wish I could say our eyes met and it was love at first sight. It wasn't. It took a little while for her to warm up to me. <laughs> but in that moment, and I look back and I think back and I'm amazed at how that little action, that little decision of a friend to go somewhere and then to tell me about it and then for me to say, okay, let me go and check it out. The, I, I, it's not an overstatement to say that the trajectory of my life was radically changed in that moment and in that decision. And I think sometimes we, we forget, we don't realize how one little decision really can change the trajectory of our life. And, that, and that's what we find in Acts chapter 3, this amazing passage. Before you read it with me, if you want to, you can turn to Acts chapter 3 in your Bible. I know it'll be up on the screen in a few moments. Uh, but before we read there, in Acts chapter 3, we meet up with a guy who has been paralyzed or lame all his life. In fact, in Acts chapter 4, it tells us for more than 40 years. So this man is in his 40s. Uh, he's been paralyzed all his life. He cannot walk. Uh, and I, I, I shouldn't need to remind you that in the first century, being paralyzed was no easy way to live life. 
There was no ease of access. There were no ramps into buildings. There were no electric wheelchairs or, or anything like that. There certainly were no social programs really geared towards those who were paralyzed all their life or, or paralyzed. And so this man, we evidently discovered that for 40 years he's been in this situation. He, he's learned the ropes. He's kind of figured out how to survive and, and how to make do. And clearly his family or his friends also know this. Uh, and so he's discovered that, well, if he wants to earn something, if he wants to get some sort of income, the best way to do that is to go to church, to go to the synagogue, uh, especially during the times when people will come into the synagogue. So either at nine o'clock in the morning or three o'clock in the afternoon at those times of prayer, he's clearly learned that, you know, the religious people are people who are likely to be more generous. Uh, and so he goes into there and, and it's three o'clock as we're going to read in a moment. And this is the day when his life changes, when two strangers interact with him. If you have your Bibles with you, you can turn to Acts chapter 3. And we're just going to read the first five verses for the moment. And bear in mind, this is after Pentecost. This is after the disciples have been commissioned by the, the Spirit of God and they're filled with the Holy Spirit and they're now continuing the work of Christ. And so they're, they're moving out. We read in verse 1, One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer, at three in the afternoon. Now a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. And then Peter said to him, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Let me just pause there for a moment. You know, and, and, and I just love the, the ordinariness of that, that account. You know, here's two guys just heading off to the temple. They're going off to pray, as is their custom. Uh, and so while they're doing that, here's this man begging at the gates. And, and you can imagine him kind of calling out alms for the poor or something like that. Maybe rattling a little cup or rattling something with some coins, hoping to get something. And he sees Peter and John. And as they're coming in, he sort of cries out and asks for something. And I love the fact that they look at him. And then they say, hey, look at us. And I'm sure at that moment he thought, oh, yes, I'm about to get paid. This is going to work out. And so, so they look, he looks at them. And I love the fact, in fact, we, we didn't read there. He looks at them, he's expecting, he's waiting. Something's coming. Read with me in verse 6 to 8. And then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have. But what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by that right hand, he helped him up. And instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and he began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. He, uh, just like there's where my mind goes, poof, you know. Because there's a little part of me going when Peter and John say, hey, look at us. And then they begin by saying, silver and gold, we don't have. I mean, can you imagine? You're like, hey, I need money. I'm begging. And now somebody interacts with you. So you think you're going to get something. 
And they just straight out say, off to look at us, we don't have anything. I mean, I wonder if there wasn't just a brief moment in that pause between the sentences when this guy was maybe thinking, how cruel are you? Like, why would you get my attention to tell me you can't give me anything? Why would you get my expectations, my hopes up, only to dash them? And I don't know, I know I'm maybe taking some poetic license, but I think there must have been that little moment. <laughs> but then Peter and John point out, we don't have money, but the one thing we do have, that we'll give you. We know Jesus Christ. We have the Spirit of God within us. That is all we can give you. And they give this the Spirit, this healing in Jesus Christ's name. And, and, and again, I just picture the scene and I try and imagine. This guy's been paralyzed, lame for over 40 years. He doesn't know what it is to walk, to move freely. The very thing that most of us probably take for granted, he's never done. And so Peter reaches down and pulls him up. And I, 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 what must have that have felt like? Legs that have never worked to suddenly have strength. And he doesn't just stand up and kind of wobble a little bit, sort of like, I don't really know what I'm doing. He jumps. He leaps. He's singing. He's praising God. And why not? God has healed him. But there's something that, I, I, that strikes me here that maybe we miss. Notice how he doesn't get what he's asked for. He wanted money. That's, that's all he thought to ask for. And yet he doesn't get it. And there's a little side note for most of us that all too often we ask God for something and God doesn't give it to us. Because God knows that's not what we need. God knows what we need. God knew this man needed healing. And that's what he gives him. I don't know about you, but I know there are times when I might pray for stuff. I might pray for things I might pray for my own life or whatever, and, and I sit there wondering, God, why haven't you answered these prayers like I want you to? And then it's in a verse like this that I'm reminded, God doesn't always give me what I want, but God will very quickly give me what I need. And as I read this story, and we'll read the rest in a moment, as I read this story, this account of this lame man, as he finds this incredible healing in Jesus' name, I think there are a couple of things that jump out from Acts chapter 3 that we can learn. There are a couple of things we need to keep in mind. And the first point, the first thought that I have from Acts chapter 3 is this idea of true healing. True healing in Jesus Christ. In fact, verses 1 to 16 explain and, and speak to us around this. You know, when we read that, we discover that indeed God really does have the power to heal. That's what he does in this account. And I know what it's like for many of us. You know, we've grown up in, in westernized, rationalized society. We've grown up in church circles where we, we don't kind of see healing too much. We don't speak about it. And we've rationalized why we don't need that. Or, or we've rationalized why those things don't happen. Yet scripture confronts us and challenges what might be called our practical agnosticism. And it reminds us that God is still at work. You know, I had a friend who, for a number of years, worked in Saudi Arabia. 
uh, and he was involved in IT and he was doing a whole bunch of consulting work. And so he was in, in an area in Saudi Arabia. Uh, and for those who perhaps don't know, Saudi Arabia is a very Muslim environment. Uh, the practice of most other faiths is generally illegal, or at least it cannot happen publicly. And the only place that Christians can practice as Christians in most parts of Saudi Arabia are in little compounds where international people are. And, and it's really, it's just this walled city within the city, and that's where you can go. But my friend would come home from time to time and because he, he just he loves Jesus and, and he will serve wherever he can, even in the middle of a Muslim environment. And so he would be involved in evangelistic work and the work of God. And he would come home and he would tell these incredible stories of, of miracles, of people having dreams of seeing Jesus in their dreams and then encountering Jesus. Uh, people experiencing incredible supernatural healings and events. And he would come back and he would share that. And almost always, most of us would seriously doubt him. And we would go, no, that's, that's an exaggeration. You know, th th God doesn't work like that. And he would see this and he would experience this. Yet we would rationalize away, no, no, uh, that's not the way it happened. And isn't it sad that that's how most of us live? When healing takes place, when the scriptures confront us and tell us to pray for healing, we sort of go, no, that's, that's not going to happen. I'm sad to say there are times when, when even I'm skeptical. And maybe I, I kind of rationalize it by saying, well, scripture says we've got to be wise. And we've got to be careful. and We've got to test everything. Absolutely. But scripture also tells us that in the name of Jesus Christ, there is healing. We need to pray for healing. The Holy Spirit who was given to that early community is given to you and I. The Holy Spirit who moves and who brings healing is still at work today. Now, of course, I know, and maybe this is why for many of our Baptist churches and many in our circles, why we don't lean that way is because we've seen and experienced the abuse on the other side. We've heard preachers come up or we've heard people say that healing is a right. If you're a Christian, you have to be healed. And if you're not healed, it's because you don't have enough faith. Or, or I hear people sometimes praying. I've heard people pray along the lines of, Jesus, you said we should heal, so I command you to heal this person. And generally, I move away because I'm worried about the lightning strike. Because I sit there going, who are we to order God? We do not have that right. We cannot order God. When I read through Scripture, I see that for some reason, God does not heal everyone. And so we don't get to just command healing. But we do pray for healing. Why? Because that's what the disciples did. Those early disciples were representatives of Christ on earth. So when Jesus said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the world, Jesus wasn't only talking to a select group of people 2,000 years ago. Jesus is still speaking to you and I, that we will be the witnesses of Christ wherever he puts us and wherever he sends us. We are representatives of Jesus on earth. Amen, indeed. And Jesus performed miracles. And Jesus sends his Holy Spirit, and his Holy Spirit performs miracles. And so we pray for healing. But I don't have to tell you 
Jesus didn't only come to earth for physical healing. Jesus didn't only come to earth to heal everyone physically, because if he did come to earth to only heal people physically, he did a terrible job of it. And I, and I don't say that blasphemous. When I read through Scripture, only a few were healed. Many were not. If Jesus wanted to heal everyone, he wouldn't have spent so much time teaching. He wouldn't have wasted his time with those disciples. He would have set up clinics. You know, he would have set up places for people to come and heal, be healed. But yet when Jesus was called back to the Father, when Jesus returned to glory and he left this earth, there were still lame people. There were still blind people. There were still people who had leprosy and all sorts of diseases. Of course, that then begs the question, well, why did Jesus heal? Why did he heal some and why not others? And why today when we pray for healing, does it seem like some are healed, but yet so many are not? Why did Jesus heal? Well, of course, one reason was because he was compassionate. He saw needs and he knew he could respond to those needs in that place. But I think there's an even more significant reason to why Jesus healed. And it was because it was an object lesson of what he had come to do. It was an object lesson of his real purpose on earth. In fact, Isaiah 35 kind of touches on this. You don't have to turn there, but in Isaiah 35, the first few verses uh, under the heading of joy of the redeemed, we read this, the desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom like the, cork the crocus, which is a plant. It will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear, your God will come. And then further down in verse 5, Then will the eyes of the blind be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer, and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. And we read that and we kind of go, okay, what's been described here? What's, what is Isaiah talking about? What's this prophecy? And really the prophecy that Isaiah is bringing forth is that there will come a day when everything will be restored to the way that God intended. And in that great day, in that restoration of all things, that's when true and lasting and eternal healing will come. When those who experience sickness will be healed. And we will realize the glory of God and the glory He created for this earth to ask, to have. And so today we still ask, well, why are people sick? Why are people blind? And maybe not only physically amongst people, why the, the, the trials and the tribulations within even the natural realm? Why tornadoes? Why hurricanes? Why earthquakes? Why famines and floods and all of these things? Well, the answer is quite simple. We still live in this fallen world. A broken world that has become twisted and distorted because of sin. Jesus Christ has not yet consummated the eternal kingdom. That place where we will live in the presence of God for eternity. And that place that the Old Testament prophets prophesied about. 
we live in that in-between. The now and not yet. The yes, Jesus has come. And Jesus has begun. And Jesus has started this work. But we are not yet there. We are not yet in glory. And so not everyone will experience healing. God in His sovereign wisdom for His reason and for His purposes will allow that some bodies will still be broken. And some bodies will still be afflicted. And some bodies will still go through, through trial. Physical, spiritual, mental, whatever the case might be. Because completion has not come. You know, there's a, a great passage in Luke chapter 5. I won't read it for us this morning. But in Luke chapter 5, Jesus is teaching in a house. And the house is full. There's no room to get into Jesus. And four friends bring their paralyzed friend because they know Jesus can heal this guy. And you all know the story. The friends get to the house. It's too full. They can't get in. So they decide, you know what? The wanton destruction of public property would be much better. So they get up onto the roof. They tear away the roof and they lower the guy down to Jesus. I mean, I, I still, again, another scene I would have loved to have seen. <laughs> they lower him down. And of course, we read in Scripture, everyone's waiting for Jesus to just heal this guy, to tell him, you go, you're healed. And what does Jesus say to him? Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. And of course, you know, the Pharisees and the, and the teachers of the law and everyone else around us, wait a minute, who is this firstly to say our sins are forgiven? And Jesus knows what they're thinking. And Jesus understands that they're all looking for physical healing. And Jesus in that moment is saying, I'm not here to bring physical healing. I'm here to bring spiritual healing. I'm here to reconcile people to our eternal God. How is that done? It's through the forgiveness of sins. But Jesus understands that they don't think he has that authority. And so in that moment, he says, so that you know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, I say to you, take up your mat and walk. He heals him, secondly, because Jesus says the primary healing is spiritual. That's why I came. That's my purpose on earth. That's my job. True healing is found in Jesus Christ in the forgiveness of sins so that we are eternally reconciled to our Father. Physical healing is great, but it's only secondary. And Jesus says, that's why I've come. You and I, as we read a passage like this, need to be about praying for people's healing. Absolutely. But first and foremost, we need to pray for that spiritual healing. That those who do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior would turn to Jesus Christ. That those who would refuse to bow the knee, that those who would refuse to repent of their sin, for those who would refuse to declare with their mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's what we pray for. And thereafter, then we can pray for healing. And so the, the gist of this opening story is that, yes, true healing comes from Jesus. But I love the, the remainder of the story. You know, they heal this man, and, and so suddenly a crowd is formed, as you can imagine. A guy who's been paralyzed for more than 40 years, lying on the side of the, the temple, begging people. All of a sudden, he's jumping, he's leaping, he's talking. 
Uh, and he's praising God is what we read. And, and Peter, I, I feel like Peter must have been Baptist. You know, I, 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 because Peter, at any opportunity he got, preached the word of God. And, and so that's, you know, I, I think he was Baptist. If he wasn't, God will correct me. You see, because Peter understands this physical healing is secondary. Peter understands that this physical healing isn't the goal, isn't the end point. Peter knows that this physical healing is an opportunity to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, to preach the message, the gospel of Christ. And I love Peter's message because Peter had no tact whatsoever. Look at verse 12 to 15 in Acts chapter 3 as Peter's preaching. When Peter saw this, he said to them, People of Israel, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the Holy and Righteous One and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised them up from the dead. We are witnesses to this. Don't you just love that absolute tactless message? Hey, hey, you guys missed it. The author of life was here and you didn't listen to it. You killed him. This is on you. And, and I can hear it. I can see it. I can feel it. The nation of Israel realizing their mistake. You know, it would be a little bit like for those of us who are married. It's a little bit like getting engaged and, and suddenly planning that big day. And, and you're thinking about the wedding day and all that it takes place. And you're planning ahead and you're dreaming about it. And you've got this vision of how perfect it is. And, and I'm trying to include both men and women, but we all know the truth. Women are dreaming about it. Uh, men are a bit clueless sometimes, but you know, we're all thinking about it. And so you're planning and you're preparing and the day is coming closer and closer and, and you've got all this excitement buzzing. And then on your wedding day, you forget. And you just go about life and you go off to work and you work or do whatever. You, you know, work in the yard or maybe do something in the kitchen. And, and then you, you, know, you get to the evening and... It comes to dinner time, and maybe you've been working all day, and nobody's prepared a meal. So you go into the freezer and pull out, you know, some frozen TV dinner thing and throw it in the microwave. And it's as you sit down on the sofa and turn on some, some, you know, Judge Judy or whatever. Uh, it's at that moment you suddenly, oh, I've left my bride or my groom at the altar. And that's exactly what Peter is saying to Israel. <laughs> the bride. You're the bride. The groom came. And you didn't even notice. You didn't even realize the groom was here. You killed the groom. This is what you did. But then Peter gets to the good news. He doesn't leave it there. Peter goes on in verse 17 to 19. Now, brothers and sisters, I know that you acted in ignorance as did your leaders, but this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. 
Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out and that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. And this is what Peter preaches. This is the second thing that I find in, the, in Acts chapter 3. Not only, firstly, that we receive true healing, but secondly, that our God is a God of forgiveness and second chances. God is a God of forgiveness and second chances. God is the one who takes a failure. God is the one who takes those who have blatantly rejected Him, and He offers a new and second chance. That God can take failure and turn it into success. That God can take a, mar- a damaged life. I use the illustration of marriage. God can take a damaged marriage and, and turn it around. God can take a broken person physically, spiritually, relationally, emotionally. God can take that and heal them and restore them. We all fail. I fail all the time. I fail as a husband. I fail as a father. I fail as a friend. And I come back to Scripture and I say, Thank you, Jesus, that you offer me forgiveness and you offer me a second chance. And not only a second chance, but you offer me a third, a fourth, a fifth. In fact, as Scripture says, 70 times seven. You offer me these these never-ending chances. Why? Because that's how much you love me. That's how much God loves each and every one of us. It's only Satan who comes along and tries to condemn us. It's only Satan who says, oh, you've messed up again. God couldn't possibly love you. And Jesus says, God is a God of second chances. The Christian life is a continual trek. It is a journey. And often it's two steps forward, one step back. Some days it might feel like one step forward, two steps back. But we go and we move and we go. Maybe this is why Paul says this so well in Philippians chapter 3. Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. The point is we all fall. Some of us might feel like we fall more than others. And Jesus reminds us when you fall, get up. There's a second chance. There's another chance. There's forgiveness. There's mercy. There's grace. Brush it off and move forward. God is there to pick us up. He will never abandon us. He will never leave us nor forsake us. And we see that in this account of Acts chapter 3. As Peter and John bring healing to an individual, as they then proclaim that God forgives and offers second chances, it leads into the third thing that we find in Acts chapter 3, and it's that we have a certain future. We have an assurance of our future. We have the certainty that through our relationship with Christ, we will be with Him. Look at what Peter continues in verse 19 to 21. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that He may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. 
Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through the holy prophets. We have a certain an assurance of the future. We have an assurance that Jesus Christ is coming again. And that Jesus Christ, when he comes, will restore all things to glory. And as they were supposed to be. You know, I was involved with a group at, at White Rock Christian Academy this past week. Um, involved in their Bible class. And, and they're doing some stuff through the Bible project and when we talk about the Bible, especially for kids, the Bible just seems like this really challenging, difficult book. I mean, honestly, for most of us, the Bible seems like a difficult book. You know, we get all excited and we start reading it and we read in Genesis chapter 1 and it's all amazing. And Genesis 1 through 11 is kind of like this epic narrative. You could almost imagine a Lord of the Rings kind of thing. And we read through Genesis and it's really cool. Then we get into Exodus and we go, hey, this is pretty cool too because there's movement. And then we start getting into Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Numbers. And we end because it just, it's so challenging. And, and we come to this. But you know, the Bible has an overarching story from beginning to end. It really does. When we pick up the Bible and we read on page one and two, we see God present and God creating, God making this perfect place for men and women. And yes, then there's some mess. But then we get to the last two pages. And again, there's a garden. Again, there is God restoring and creating this perfect place. That's the overarching story of the Bible. There will come a time in the future when God will restore all things that the prophets speak about, that the Word of God speaks about, that Jesus himself spoke about. And when we proclaim the gospel that God offers forgiveness and that God offers us a second chance, God also offers us an assurance of a future with Him. Church, don't ever forget that. As I wind up this morning and, and kind of close before we go to the communion table, I'm reminded of the, the lines from that old hymn. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. One day God will restore all things. God will restore the creation and God will restore you and I. Feeble legs will be filled with strength. Mute mouths will declare and sing praises. Blind eyes will see the glory of God in this place, in the presence of God. It is nothing we do. It is a pure gift of grace. We are simply invited to receive it and accept it. And once we receive it and accept it, so we then are witnesses to it. As we read Acts chapter 3, let's not read a little healing and go, okay, that was for then, uh, and forget about it. Let's go, Jesus is still in the business of healing. We're going to pray for that. And in those times, for whatever reason, he doesn't, well, we're going to trust that true healing has come as salvation. 
And then in that in-between, we're going to cling to the hope of glory. That's certain assurance. Let's pray together. Jesus, I thank you for this account in Acts chapter 3. I thank you that by your Holy Spirit, you sent your disciples out. As that early church was birthed, as that community of faith in Christ was fueled and ignited, enthused by the Spirit, as they went out as witnesses, Jesus, I thank you that you did incredible things through them. I thank you that you healed people. And in healing, you showed everyone that you have power over life and death. That you are the creator of life. And that you restore life where it is lost. And so, Father God, in humility and, and in obedience, we pray. And we pray for healing. But we know, God, that in your sovereign wisdom, there are times you do not give us what we want. And for your kingdom and for your glory, you allow us to go through hardship. Perhaps a cancer diagnosis. Perhaps being laid off or retrenched from work. Perhaps experiencing some other kind of loss. And in those times, God, you call us to simply trust you. Believing that you are doing something way more than what we could imagine or dream of. And in those times, when perhaps we don't get what we want, help us to see that we've gotten what we need. We've received true spiritual healing. We've received forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And because of that, let us cling to, to the assurance that is to come. The hope that is found in you and that we will spend eternity in your presence worshiping serving jesus thank you for we pray this in your name amen